What is good, everyone? Welcome back to the NOA podcast. Speaking as your co-host, Tyler, here my man, it's Trey. Yo. Before we start, I want to give a quick shout out to y'all. Thank you guys for listening to us. Thank you guys for rocking with us. We appreciate all the support that you guys show. And frankly, we wouldn't be where we're at if it wasn't for you guys. So big thank you to you guys. Uh, can't express that enough. So check us out on uh, Instagram. The NOA podcast Instagram is going to be NOA underscore podcast. You can check out me and Trey as well. Mine's going to be Tyler underscore Waller three. Trey's is going to be Trey Quan underscore Park seven. Also, we have a TikTok, so check out TikTok. That's going to be NOA podcast one. Also, all episodes are out on Spotify as well as on YouTube. So if you don't have Spotify, check us out on YouTube. The YouTube channel, just type in NOA podcast. We put uh, all of our episodes on there as well as different clips up there. Uh, follow, like, subscribe, support us. Um, yeah, and thank you guys so much, and let's get into it. Today, we have a very special guest. Very special. I'm very happy to have him on. I'm very excited that I was able to get him on here. Uh, he was my, he's currently my college professor, uh, Mr. Doug Dick. So, Doug, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, rock with us today. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm good. Thank you, uh, Tyler and Trey, for making this podcast, for letting me be a part of it. Of course, of course. Now, Doug, we were speaking, frankly, before the podcast, and I'm very happy I got to talk to you about this because uh, I find myself as a little bit of a historian in regards to just World War II. Now, you brought up like the nuclear bomb in itself. And the question I had for you is, do you think the end justifies the means? Now, I heard this in like high school, we were talking about it, but essentially there was going to be an invasion of Japan. Thousands upon thousands of our soldiers would have perished if we hadn't used this nuclear weapon. So do you think the ends justify the means? Well, I think that's a really good question. And I wouldn't want to put it in that sense. You see, we, we touch on this in my course, and I think it's a great opportunity. It's a, it's a good workout for critical thinking. The people of 1945 had had it with war, and they were within a hair of wrapping it all up. All they needed was unconditional surrender from Japan. And that even, that was just an accident. And at one of those uh, international conferences, I think it was Yalta, mm -hmm. a reporter put a microphone in front of FDR's face and asked him, what's it gonna to take to end the war? And without thinking, without preparation, without consulting anyone, he just said in an offhand manner, unconditional surrender. Mm. Uh, he died before, before uh, I think. He yeah, died. the end of the war. Yeah, he died. So uh, August of 1945, Truman was president. And those words from FDR were what were in the way. Truman carried on that legacy and was looking for unconditional surrender. But at the time, in August of 1945, Japan was no longer an offensive threat. It had, nothing. it had nothing in the way of a Navy or a, an Air Force. There were a few planes that were used kamikaze style, but there was, there was no threat there from Japan anymore. It had been reduced to its home island. It, it, it was out of all the other islands. It was out of China. It was out of gas. It was out of food. It was out of ammo. And it had nothing much in the way of industry. And don't forget... Uh, 
the devastation by the atomic bomb was not much, if any, greater than the firebombing of Tokyo. True. That is very true. Yeah. Hamburg, Dresden, and then Tokyo were reduced to toothpicks. Absolute rubble. Yeah. A, a, a strategy of bombing that created a wind that fueled the fire that then created more wind mm-hmm. that cycle. Uh, so there wasn't. And, and the reason for Hiroshima and Nagasaki being targets was there wasn't much. There was, there was no other. There were a few. There was a short list. There were only a, a handful of Japanese cities left that would show any great destruction. Mm-hmm. The rest were trouble. Japan was really reduced to an insignificant non-power in August of 45. And then Truman hands the American people this ultimatum. In order to get unconditional surrender, we're going to have to invade Japan with enormous loss of life to both Americans and Japanese uh, soldiers and civilians, or we drop the bomb. And then we save American soldiers, and we probably reduce the number of Japanese soldiers and civilians that are going going to die. And of course, with that ultimatum, everybody would say, go with the bomb. Yeah, go with the bomb, yeah. But what I want to say is, when you're a critical thinker and you don't like either option, you don't take either option. You find a third option. And mm. the third option is staring you right in the face. You blockade the island. It's an island. You put your ships around the island and nothing comes in and nothing goes out. And you just sit there and wait and you tell the people of Japan, we're ready to accept your surrender whenever you're ready to give it. And until then, well, nothing's coming in, nothing's going out. You know, you know, I, I will say that is that is a little bit of wishful thinking, though, because uh, they did have, like you said, common cause. So you park your ships like right outside the, the their home island. They're just going to try to like bomb them. Yeah, what, and, if they started, what if they started attacking? Then what? No. Like they did in Okinawa. That's exactly what they did, yeah. They just yeah. bombed them. I mean, they're, they're going to, they're almost out of gas. They're almost out of ammo. They've got nothing left. And you can park those ships quite a ways off so that they've got to fly a long way to, to, to get to them. You don't have to. I mean, you got a whole, <laughs> you got a whole allied force of Navy. You know, it's, uh, Russia had in in, in uh, invaded Manchuria. They they had invaded, so they were pushing down from that side. UK was there. Australia was there. You could you could have just sat on that thing and not. Now what happened? All right, so they dropped the bomb, and you know what that did? That showed Russia that America would bomb civilian centers, which it had already always until Hamburg and Dresden, and then Tokyo. America had refrained from from like bombing America, civilian cities. Yeah, had minimized civilian civilian deaths. You know, I think it it was more not not just for Japan, but it was also a show, frankly, of just the world that we have this weapon and we're not afraid to use it. You know, because uh, as as everyone knew the war was coming to an end, now it was a switch up of all right, who are the major players going to be in the coming future? And uh, Russia and America were kind of the top dogs at that point. So I think it was just our way of saying to them, like, listen, like, 
all right, yeah, you might be the leaders of Eastern Europe, that's fine, but like we have this weapon and we're willing to use it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, if you will read that book, uh, The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rose, you'd see that the physicists were saying it's just a matter of time because the, before those Russian physicists make the bomb, it's not something that we can keep secret. They, you know, physicists, like scientists in general, they're, they're not political. They were publishing this stuff that you would think would be top secret. They were publishing the science in science journals. Yeah. They wanted the priority. The guys who were making the discoveries, they wanted their name associated with these discoveries. You know, they didn't publish the Manhattan Project. They didn't publish the building of the bomb, but they published the physics and yeah. what what Szilard and and Bohr and uh, were saying, particularly to trying to get to the president to say it, is don't use that bomb. Set this precedent, show the Russians that we're not going to use it. And maybe we can then negotiate some kind of disarmament so we don't actually have a, an arms race. Well, that's not what happened. And you see, we dropped that bomb and that launched the, that's into the arms race, yeah. The arms race, the yeah, Cold yeah. War. The Cold War. Which could have... For that bomb, there may have never been a Korea or a Vietnam. That's a very good point. Wow, yeah, true. So like World War One was really the, the cause of World War Two. Mm -hmm. I think you can make a strong case that dro dropping that bomb on civilian populations led to the Cold War. Which made Korea, which made Vietnam. Who knows? Maybe it even trickled into Afghanistan and Iraq. Wow. This polarization and this readiness to go to war in readiness to kill civilians. What a horrible thing. Yeah, you know, I think I do definitely agree with you. There's a lot of correlation between, at least I think, between just the how the end of the war was handled and how, you know, the future powers like handled themselves, you know? And I think in my personal opinion, it might have been a necessary evil because it shows how humans are that destructive to when they'll go towards that type of an extent to destroy something, I guess that they don't, that they don't agree with or want frankly to be over with. You know, you, you yourself said, like, by 45, people were just fed up with the war. They were done with it. They didn't want to keep fighting. They were tired of it. You know, they've had like four or five long years of this. You know, it's been going on for a while now. Thousands upon thousands of innocent civilians have been killed. Soldiers have been killed. You know, it's it's a rough time for everyone going around. So they were just trying to look for the biggest way to essentially get out of that. And I think the governments of that, of that time took it upon themselves to try out this experimental weapon, you know, knowing what type of power it holds. They want to see how essentially test to see how it would work. And by them testing it, you know, they're just showing the world that, yeah, we're willing to do this, which then led to, as you said, the cold war and Vietnam. Oh, like and, uh, desperate times calls for desperate measures in a way, you know, they're willing to, they're willing to do something that big, that drastic. Yeah. I think that uh, thinking in terms of rational concepts like you just did, I think that's 
a bit naive. I think there's a behind the scenes uh, scenario, which is more powerful, which has to do with profit. Oh, I think okay. Profiteers who see, I mean, there's nothing as profitable as war. True. I mean, you weapons, you blow them up and you make them again. It's true. It's very true. And that profit is, uh, I think, in control of the lobbyists who control so much of the players in all the governments, that there's this uh, military industrial complex and we don't see, it's not in the history books, but it's the reason war is so common and so hard to get away from because there's a big, big, big profit to be made. I can understand where you're coming from if you're talking about conventional weapons. So if we're talking about tanks, planes, you know, regular guns and artillery, fine. But we're talking nuclear weapons. Now, as far as I'm known, in a, specific, in a war itself, only two nuclear weapons have ever been used, and they haven't been used since. Obviously, they've been used in testings and other things like that, but only two have been used. So there really isn't much, I'd say, profit to be made besides, I guess the building of all these weapons and stockpiling them themselves. Yeah, well, it's not just stockpiling. It's building the bombers and then revamping them and renovating and keeping up so that, you know, every bomber fleet becomes obsolete and a new one is, is made. The same with the submarines. You know, we, we, Connecticut is about to receive, you know, a multi-billion dollar contract to build a, 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 almost a fleet of new subs. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. They're, like, pushing those commercials a lot lately. Yeah, and then, uh, and then the missiles, you know, yeah, you don't shoot them, but they grow obsolete. So, so you, over time, you have to fix them up and repair them and make sure they're up to standard. Yeah. Oh. There, you know, there's a just phenomenal amount of profit there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at I mean, You could just take, a, take an example. Like, we were going through the Great Depression before World War II. And it absolutely pulled us out of it because our economy boomed because of that. That's right. There's nothing so profitable as war. Yeah, it's a rough thing. It is a rough thing. Something so destructive is so at the same time. You know what I wanted to add to that? Something you said what's very war is very profitable from. It's also one of the best ways of like using new technology. Because, like, you're trying to get that technological, like, advantage over your enemy or so. So it's one of the, I guess, best ways of, like, finding out new technologies. And, I mean, th- think of the tank, for instance. That was used during World War I. England brought that to, England brought that to existence. That's, like, new technologies being used there. The plane, new technologies being used there. That's just, you know? Yeah. Look at NASA. Yeah. When Kennedy launched that uh, moonshot. And Sputnik and all that that came after that was there was a military component right from the beginning. There was a fear that if we had Russian satellites hovering over America, they could drop bombs from those satellites. So satellites, yeah, yeah, I've heard about that. They're they're, they're over Nebraska and New York and L.A. They fly over, you know, they fly over there every day, you know. We, we, we had no idea how easy it might be to destroy these cities from those satellites. Mm-hmm. So there was this big push to, to enter that technology race and beat the Russians to the moon. Mm-hmm. 
and beat them in other ways in that space technology. And you know, it's kind of like what we're doing now in uh, the modern day. We have the, we built our like own space force. So now we're trying to figure out ways to essentially having a military in space. Yeah. Well, that scratches the surface. The thing, one of the things that really scares me is there's a, a top, top secret site in Alaska that um, <laughs> you can't find an awful lot about, but there's, it's the technology of controlling weather. Imagine, Damn, really? Imagine you go to war with Russia. Wouldn't it be nice if they had tornadoes, hurricanes? That'd be the ultimate advantage. Earthquakes. You know, so that's what's going on in the remote wilderness area of Alaska is experiments on how to control weather and intentionally bring bad weather to the enemy. You know, interestingly enough, you bring that up. They tried using that in Vietnam. So there was a specific bomb. I'm not sure what it's called, but I remember watching a documentary and they would bomb specific supply routes so that it would rain. And essentially they couldn't push supplies through to where their troops. How effectively did that work? It wasn't it wasn't as effective as they wanted it to be, so they didn't continue using it. Yeah, that's part of what's so scary. Now they don't know what they're doing with this top top secret uh, climate control. You know, they don't know what they're doing. So let's say they want to try uh, making an earthquake on some remote area in Pacific Ocean, some remote uninhabited island, and they they're off by a little bit. <laughs> And the earthquake comes to India or Pakistan or China, you know? Mm-hmm. Just by oh. That's just a, a, a geopolitical situation that's going to have to be dealt with right there. Yeah. Imagine some terrorist gets a hold of this stuff where, you know, where they can start playing with the weather and they don't really care where they disrupt the weather. Just. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is true. You know, this is a, a thing that I've been thinking about lately. So, you know, we all know that the, the war in Ukraine is currently going on and Russia is not looking too hot. And a lot of people are speculating that, like, after this whole fiasco is over, like Russia, as we know, it really won't be the same. It might just separate into separate states or whatever, because I guess uh, it's like being used as a dictatorship currently by um Putin. Now, I know Russia has nuclear weapons, and the thing that I was thinking, and it's very similar to how the Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union collapsed, all their nuclear weapons were like left in countries that obviously separated from them. So, essentially, it's going to be a lot easier for people to come into contact or better yet just get access to these weapons now because, I guess, Russia, hypothetically speaking, if whatever happens, happens. Uh, is no longer as it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Imagine what Iran would pay to get some hydrogen bombs and missiles to deliver. Oh, man. They'd play a top dollar. They'd do anything. I mean, you got Russia now, and you're, you were applying economic sanctions, so Russia's getting poorer by the minute. And they're sitting on a war chest of the top technology. And, yeah. and you're going to have terrorists countries, terrorist groups, making very attractive offers. And, you know, if it looks, in my opinion, to Putin, like he's got nothing to win, what's to, what's to say, hey, here, take the whole arsenal, give us a whole pile of dough, and we'll be economically successful once again. 
You know, it's a scary, scary world. Just yeah, you know, um, not even to ponder too deeply what could happen. You know, who knows what's, but it's it's scary. It's it doesn't. I don't know. Doesn't look optimistic to me. No, I mean I've been hearing just like a lot about like it spiraling into you know other countries because like we're now sending a lot more equipment to them and and all that. And as a person who like watches a lot of history documentaries, I find this interesting, but I also find it very worrisome just because uh, one I don't know if like the draft would be reinstated. I'm also just paying attention to just what okay. China and Taiwan's doing, and uh, I'm not sure if China is ever going to decide to essentially take that leap of faith and do what Russia did with Ukraine and attack them, you know? And I know with their situation, it's a little bit more difficult because we have, I guess, like a, an alliance pact that we made might've been during the fifties. I knew it was around the time of the Korean war um, that we, we would come to their aid if like China ever invaded or such, you know? So uh, there's just a lot of uh, countries that I've been just paying attention to geopolitically. And, uh, it's it is worrisome. I do I do agree with you. I think it gets out of hand. I think like let's take just a, a minute to look at Ukraine. The people of Ukraine are being heroic now. Those who stay behind, those who take on this unbelievable fight, this Alamo type fight, and Zelensky is you know going to go down in history as one of the great. It's like Churchill, you know. Really? For real? Fine. But this war is going to end. Now, how is it going to end? You know, I think it's a good chance that it's going to end just like it could have ended before it started. Ukraine is going to agree to something. They're going to have to. <laughs> yeah. They're going to say, well, we won't join NATO. And that's what Putin was asking. Yeah, that's what he wanted. That's what he wanted, and in the end, he's going to get what he wanted, and Ukraine is going to be agreeable to that. They're going to have to. I mean, how else are they going to end this war? They're not going to invade Russia. No, no, but what they want to do is just push them out of the country. They want to take yeah. back the Crimean region. Yeah, well, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I think that's highly unlikely. Yeah, I also agree with that. That is highly unlikely. Yeah, unless somebody bumps off Putin. But I mean, if Putin stays in power, I think this war is going to wrap up just like it could have wrapped up in a much less violent way in the beginning by just saying, you know, you look over the border. Is life in Russia so bad? I mean, it's not Nazi Germany. Russians seem to be doing all right, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, hell with them. So we used to be Ukrainians, now we'll be Russian. So what? But now, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine is uh, so devastated and so, so much death, so much destruction. But in the end, I think it's going to be pretty much like it could have been in the beginning. Do you think, do you think this could have all been avoided if they, they had just agreed not to join NATO? Yeah, I think so. I think negotiation, you know, Biden could have gone over there and said, hey, we don't, we're not going to meddle. I mean, just think a minute. When, when Russia put missiles in Cuba, Kennedy was ready to blow up the whole world. <laughs> yeah. Remember that? They're willing and to do it. Our shore and he says, you get them out now or we, we go to war and whatever comes of it comes of it. But we're not going to tolerate this. Well, Ukraine, it, right there on the border with Russia, 
and it's making overtures to the West, almost like inviting the West to put missiles in, in, in Ukraine. You know, you got missiles, you got NATO's in Poland already, you know, and Romania and Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia. These all used to be Soviet Union, now they're NATO countries. Well, is it so unreasonable to, for Putin to say, no, we're not going to let Ukraine become part of NATO? And uh, I think Biden and Zelensky could have said, all right, well, let's make some kind of deal. You know, I'm not defending what Russia is doing currently, but I can understand why I guess they'd be upset by this just because when when uh, when Soviet Union collapsed, um, I guess there was an agreement between Russia or the Soviet Union at the time and NATO that they wouldn't take the countries that were once a part of the is it CSTO that that little organization that they had. Um, so be it that all the countries that were once or a decent amount of the countries that were once a part of that, they eventually ended up joining NATO. And I guess that's kind of what Russia is so upset about. And that's why they don't want, yeah, they don't want uh, Ukraine now to join because they're feeling threatened. Now, I'm not sure if they're going to threaten them. I'm not really sure about any of that. But I do know, it, I feel like it definitely could have been avoided this war. Yeah. I think it's like the domino theory in Vietnam. Remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, if you don't stop communist spread in Vietnam. It's going to go to the other countries. Yep. So, you know, I can imagine Russia saying almost the, the same thing. If you, we don't stop them at the Ukraine, where they're going to come from Moscow. Yeah, they're going to keep coming. They're going to keep coming. It's going to stop them, you know. And this all started, I think, as you have brought up very correctly with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. America showed its willingness to kill civilians at a time when, you know, it wasn't really militarily necessary. I, I will say this. It, it kind of has backfired though, a little bit on Russia because now Finland and I believe it's Finland and it's either Finland and Sweden or Finland and Norway. I'm not sure which one of the three countries, but the, the Norwegian countries are now considering joining NATO and the border is going to be even longer with them. Yes, and there's going to be more weapons, and it's going to be worse for Russia. And that you know can sound good. It can sound optimistic. Okay, if if NATO in Eastern Europe is stronger, then Russia is automatically weaker. But let's remember, if Russia gets weaker, they may get more desperate, and then they got those. Yes, that's what I'm thinking as well. You know. Because if you have them essentially pinned in a corner and their back is pushed up against the wall, they don't know what to do next. They might like, you know, go, they might just do something drastic. Yeah. And they could, they could launch, but in, in addition to launch, they could sell them. Yeah. Mm hmm. Very true. And I mean, Korea would like them and Iran would like them. And maybe there's a whole lot of other groups, you know, terrorist groups that would love a few hydrogen bombs here and there. Oh, uh, that definitely doesn't make sense. I don't know. This whole situation itself is kind of, I mean, I tell Tyler about it every now and then. He isn't as versatile, I guess, as I am in regards just to whole. It's kind of like why he's so quiet, the whole like situation. So I'm I'm the one who like lets him know about it. But I, I, I tend to like watch the news in regards to all these things just because 
I'm not really interested in politics, but I guess world politics, how countries deal with each other and how like, you know, uh, they get what they want from each other and they uh, trade with each other and frankly declare wars on each other. So I find that interesting. And that's kind of like what I would say I had to do for a pastime. Now, uh, coming back to a question I'd like to ask you, do you think the draft would ever be reinstated? Can I just interrupt for one minute? Yeah, of course. As an engineer, to have a conscience and be an engineer, I think you have to be like you are exhibiting. You have to care about how your engineering work can be put to use by other people, by politicians, by technicians. Mm. You're doing exactly what everybody would love engineers to do. Think about the implications. Don't just, don't just be a tool, but think. So I, I applaud really this broader perspective that you bring to your, to your field. It's not, it's not just a hobby. You're, you're making engineering a responsible. Whereas I think in the past, it hasn't been really responsible mm-hmm. human activity. It's been available for use. You bring up a you bring up a good point. That is something that I haven't noticed in the past. You know, it's definitely something I haven't noticed in the past. But the draft, you want to talk about the draft? Yeah. Well, do you think do you think it'd ever be reinstated? I don't know what to think. I don't like the draft, but I don't like the idea that poor kids go off and fight our battles. You know, if you've, if you've got access to some kind of funds and some kind of support, you go to college. And if you don't, the military looks like a real attractive alternative. And it's uh, seductive. You know, it gets the kids and they, they're not thinking they're going to stand in harm's way or they're going to die or kill for the cause. They're thinking, well, I'll, you know, I'll get a skill and when I come back, they'll pay my tuition. The, unit, the military will pay the tuition. So it's a bit like you started our podcast. You started our podcast with a very difficult question. Should we invade Japan or drop the bomb? So here you bring a similar question. Should we draft? And then what you have is a kind of across the board conscription or do we not have a draft? And then what you have is a selective recruitment of kids without financial, without financial resources. The poor serve in the army. I don't like either one. I want a third option. My third option is, yeah, whether you have the draft or you don't have the draft, you have a minimum age of service of somewhere near 65. Minimum age of military service in USA should be somewhere near 65. If you're not 65, you're too young to serve. Well, would that be effective? Yeah, you see, in the old days, there was a great need for physical fitness in war. Now, there's much less of that. That much is true. Yeah, that is true. Hand-to-hand combat, you don't. I mean, you're... If you're sitting in a tank, you're operating a computer. If you're in an Air Force jet, 
again, it's computers. And maybe if you're operating a drone, wherever the war is, you're sitting in Manhattan or Palm Beach or somewhere like that, drinking a martini. And uh, there might be, there might be a reason to select, you know, young people for specific jobs that require physical perfection, let's say. Uh, SEALs, for instance. But for the vast majority of military purposes, I think fit 65, 70-year-olds, 75-year-olds would be just fine. And that would then help everything because you know you can you can order kids around at will but when you're trying to order around 65 and 70 and 75 year old men particularly but men and women now they're going to resist if it doesn't seem reasonable they're going to think and you're going to have i think in my opinion you're going to have the possibility of a much more compassionate and rational military force. I think the reason they don't do that is because that's not what they want. Um, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. And uh, I, I definitely agree with the fact that the military is moving a little bit away from the conventional way war is fought. But I still also believe boots on the ground is a necessary thing in order to, all right, you're going to take territory. How else are you going to hold it? You really can't hold it with just drones. You need yeah. actual people there. So that's what the, that's what the infantry is for. In infantry, they need younger folks to carry those weapons because they have to arm themselves. They're going into enemy territory. So they have to arm themselves. You know, they have to keep their packs on them. Chances are you're going to need logistics in order to get these people there. So we need either planes, helicopters, trucks. So you need those people to operate those things. Then you need the maintenance companies to fix those things when they break down. So I do think it is a necessity that we would, you're still going to need younger folk in order to operate this military. Now, a big proponent of why they use young people is because one, we're easier to control, as you just said. Yeah. And a military isn't going to run well if I tell you to charge that bunker because we need it taken down and we're pinned down under fire. And then you're going to argue with me on whether or not it can be done. And I just, I just need it done. Now, you know, yes, I agree. There are definitely easier ways of maybe taking the bunker. Maybe there's a more effective. You can flank around the back or the side. But we're really not talking about different ways or effective ways in order to accomplishing a mission. We just need the mission accomplished. Hey, you're an engineer. And I think you're not thinking like an engineer now. An engineer, from my perspective, takes on a problem finds a problem that's interesting, takes on that problem, and then thinks about how to solve the problem. And what I'm hearing from you is conventional, is so conventional that I'm thinking, you're not asking yourself, mm -hmm. what do you want to accomplish? How do you solve a problem? That's, I think you're talking about obsolete military, military that really ended in World War II. As you brought it up, you know, that's how World War II was won with conventional thinking that you had. Go take that bunker. Here's a summary statement of the strategy that has prevailed in the military 
and in football and basketball and sports like that. The best defense is the best offense. That's what won World War II and that's what won World War I and that's, that's been the strategy. The best defense is the best offense. Now, what I wanna tell you is that's no longer true. That's an obsolete way of thinking. Now, the best defense is the best defense. And how do you do best defense? So imagine there's a problem country. Imagine we're back at 2001 and we're thinking about doing something about Afghanistan because in Afghanistan, there's Taliban and maybe there's Al Qaeda and there's people there that we think are a risk to us. So look at what conventional thinking did. It sent soldiers to roam around in Afghanistan and shoot at people they thought were terrorists. Wow, look what it accomplished. What do we have in Afghanistan now? The terrorists won. Absolutely nothing, yeah. We, we, we lost that war as clearly as we lost Vietnam because it doesn't make any sense to roam around in a terrorist backyard looking for trouble. That doesn't accomplish anything. What would have accomplished something is if we went in there with air power and put down a perimeter and then entered that perimeter and defended it against all threats. And then we opened the door and we said, any innocent people in Afghanistan who want to come and live in here are welcome. And uh, we teach them how to be self-sufficient. And then we recognize them as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. And we say, the rest of you guys, go ahead and shoot each other if that's what you want. But Afghanistan now is in our protected perimeter. It becomes our ally at the UN. It becomes a cooperative power. We help it become a power in controlling the world. We do that in Afghanistan, we do it in Iraq, we do it in Syria. We go to Syria and we put down a perimeter around the oil wells and we guard that perimeter as we would Bagram Air Base. Nobody's coming in there. But we don't have to roam around in Syria. We don't have to roam around in Afghanistan. We don't give a shit about that. Let the terrorists stay out there. We own this land that we just took from you and we're gonna hold it and we're gonna keep it. And we're gonna invite Syrians, innocent Syrians to live in here. And we're gonna teach them how to run those oil wells and those oil refineries. And then we're gonna acknowledge them. We're gonna recognize them as the legitimate government of Syria. Presto, we put the despot out of power We've got a friendly Syria. We've got a friendly Afghanistan. We've got a friendly Iraq. We go from country to country to country and we conquer the world in that manner. That's the best defense, being the best defense. And we don't stop at terrorist threats. We look, where is their hunger in the world? And we give an ultimatum to the ruler of that country. Solve that hunger problem or we'll solve it for you. And when we solve it, you're out of power, buddy. I would I'd definitely say that is a you're, you're making it sound easier than it would actually be because okay, we'll take we'll take Afghanistan or uh, Iraq for instance. In order to get into that country in the first place, we're going back to two thousand and one. 
where we were thinking about that. And in order to get there, we're still going to have to fight in one way, shape, or form because they had an Air Force at the time. So we would fight with their Air Force. We would hypothetically gain air superiority over whatever you're talking about. But okay, now they're in their cities. So are we just going to take some land in the desert and start building a city there? Or are we going to try to take one of their cities to actually start this thing up? We try to take one of their cities. Well, you can't take a city with just planes. You need actual troops. So regardless, you're going to have to send troops in to take the city. You take Bagram Air Base. So you just take the you just take the air base and start from there. You take some area of desert, and you teach people how to put up solar panels, how to put up windmills, and you begin to generate an economy. You don't have to shoot anybody. You come at night. What I I see I see I see I I, I can I get what you're saying. But we're not, I don't think we're taking into consideration, I guess the, maybe, maybe the right word is indoctrination, but like they did not like us. So us going there, okay, you might get one or two people who are willing to help, but the majority of them saw us just as invaders. So we would, they'd have this animosity towards us to where they wouldn't want to join us anyway. It's kind of like you're fighting the people, not even just, you're not fighting a conventional government you're fighting just the people so the people themselves don't want you there so i think this might work in specific scenarios but maybe in this one it might not be the same that's not true no woman was safe under taliban ruled afghanistan no man who was reasonable was safe no man who wanted to have a normal family relationship or who respected women or respected women's rights no such man in afghanistan was safe that is nope. true but you, i i think those people are a part of the minority no well all right let's say hypothetically then you got no business going there go to syria you know for a, an absolute fact that in syria there's there's you know there's a whole bunch of people that want to overthrow um, the leader, I forgot his name. You know, you'd have, you'd have allies. You'd have people cheering you. And here you, that's the reason to go because you've got a bad guy in charge and you're going to, you're going to push him out of power. You're going to do regime change. You know? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I guess so. But I, I see kind of just turning out similarly to how it turned out in Afghanistan because at the end of the day they still gain control so yeah okay we want to do a regime change but a lot of the times we try to do a regime change that doesn't really work out to the benefit that we want it to and then you know we're talking about our training these civilians and such to to build solar panels or whatever they need to frankly fix themselves but there are plenty of like terrorists who pretend to be civilians and then just sabotage like while we're in while they're inside the base itself. Yeah, so well, then you you really can't just trust. It'd be very it'd be a very distrusting situation. I think you have to do background checks. You have to do more than just trust. You have to really work hard to find people who you want in your safe area 
anyway, it's never been tried. I think it'd be worth a try. It'd be interesting to look at mm-hmm. an approach and it would be a whole lot safer for us. I mean, uh, it just seems, I brought it up in my class, so maybe Tyler's not going to, he's maybe tired of hearing it, but. <laughs> he's pretty quiet. <laughs> go back to the Super Bowl. I think it was 2016 where Seattle is within the 10-yard line of Patriots. Seattle has the ball. They're, you know, they're ready. They're threatening to score. And yeah, it's, it's ridiculous what happens. I think the I think the Pats were leading by four points. So all all Seattle had to do was push that ball, run the ball. and they win the Super Bowl. Essentially, got um, Marshawn Lynch in the backfield, who's the best rusher in the league. Uh, what's the play call? It's second down. What's the play call? Some pass. No, no, that's what happened. But what it's a run. You run the ball. You're gonna hand it to Mark. I mean, that's that's the proper play call. Yeah, you run it. You're that close You're within the ten. Yeah, and you got the best rusher. So that's not what they did. The coach calls a pass, and it's intercepted, and the Pats win. They run out the clock, and they win the yeah. game. The fans go nuts. The Seattle fans go nuts. You know, they're criticizing Pete Carroll, who's. You know, if he's not already, he's going in the Hall of Fame because he won a national championship at USC, a college championship, and he won a Super Bowl. So there's not too many coaches that are like that, but the fans are criticizing him. Most of those fans never played football, let alone on a college level, let alone on a pro level, let alone be Hall of Fame material, you know. Yet they're criticizing this one of the greatest coaches of all time. Why don't we do that with our military? If you look at Afghanistan and you go back over the 20 year period of that, you see kids getting killed and you, and, and nobody, there's no fans. Nobody says, what did they die for? What was the purpose of it? When I read those stories, you know, it, it kind of, it's not only sad, but it's a bit infuriating. Who was held responsible? Let me just tell you, just repeat one story, although there's, there's endless, this, the list of the mistakes that cost American soldiers their lives in Afghanistan is endless. It's just like the officers were totally incompetent. Here's, here's, here's one example, okay? There's a, there's a house and it's thought to have terrorists, Taliban inside the house. So a colonel or some high officer orders infantry in the door of the house, go in there and get those guys. And the first guy through the door gets uh, something like 15 bullets. He doesn't die. He takes out his revolver. He kills a terrorist or two. And then he's in the hospital, you know, and he recovers. But they lost, they lost a bunch of guys walking through the door. What would you have done if you wanted those terrorists? What would you have done? Um, I'll say this. Do we know for a fact there are no civilians in the building? You know, do we know for a fact that it's only terrorists in there? I don't know. Either way. How are you going to take them? You're going to walk, you're going to invade the building. What would police do? 
Yeah, I'd, I'd surround the building and just hope. Surround the building and you'd, you'd give them two seconds. Yeah, they come out. <laughs> you're shooting tear gas through the window. And then they're going to come out and they're going to come out with their hands up or you're going to shoot them. That's what's going to happen. And you're not going to lose an American life. And you're going to get them all out of the building and they're all going to jail or they're all going to be dead. But you put the risk on the terrorist, not on the American soldier. That What could be so stupider? than to send your soldiers into a house where you, know, where you think the guys in the house are armed terrorists. Nothing stupider than it. And that's just one on a long list of things like that where if anybody was a fan, if that was football, you'd want the coach fired. If that's, if that's war, you ought, I mean, there ought to be some general that gets fired for that. But you also... Like war and like football and sports are way completely different. I think I look at completely different. You know, when you're going to war, you know there's a chance that you might get killed. You know there's a chance yeah. that you you take casualties. When you're going to football, I guess the most thing that will happen to you is what we talked about in class, like with the CTE. That you know that's a, a possibility. But uh, I think I, I agree with you in regards to the sacrifice. You know, it is not like it is not. The sacrifice that the soldiers during the invasion of Normandy made and the sacrifice that the soldiers make, at least today, I feel like is just not to the equivalent, you know, they're really not, I don't see the point in dying for, I guess, the country now. I understood during the 40s because Hitler was a thing and, you know, we had to take out Nazism, but I, I don't see the point of it at this, this I guess, very moment. That's, that's exactly my point. You've got generals making decisions about soldiers' lives that the people would not approve if they knew them. And I don't understand why the people don't want to know. Why aren't we up in an uproar? You cannot take our soldiers and waste them. You can't do that. We're not going to let that happen. I think what they're trying to do is give the soldiers experience and then give them, by giving them experience. You know, it's kind of like what they say, uh, baptism of fire, whatever, you know, putting them actually in combat situations where I, I guess, yeah, they're putting their lives on the line. Well, you think and I think it's, I agree with you. I think it is a ridiculous thing that we're doing, but it is, it is one of the reasons we have such a highly professional military is because not only do we have training, but we have actual military experience. Yeah. But uh, as you said, Normandy was life or death for the world. And Afghanistan was a mistake. Yeah, I agree with that. I 100% agree with that. Uh, it, it burned. It, it hurt. It genuinely hurt to see how we left that area. Personally, I, was, I saw 20-year-olds, 19-year-olds getting killed. You know, young kids. And... It really, it, it even affected my mother because she looked at me knowing that I used to want to join the military. And she thought like that could have been me, you know, that could have 100% been my son there holding that kid while a bomb blew up. So it, it definitely sucks to see that all that happen. And it definitely sucks to see it take place. And you, you read, you remember what Biden said? He said something like, I didn't know how to do it better. Wow. When you don't know 
how to do it better. Don't you ask advice? Yeah, that is, that is what you do. That's why you have advisors. That's right. And I mean, they could have called me. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, Doug, what you think, bro? <laughs> you know, I'm here. I'll take the call. I give you advice. Don't pull the Air Force out. Before yeah, for go. real. That's that was a bad idea. You need air cover. Don't pull the Air Force out before you pull the people out. It definitely could have been taken. Uh, it could have been dealt with. It could have been dealt with better. Now, a topic that I'd be, I'd, I'm interested in going into because uh, apparently you spoke about this recently in a class, and I'm very disappointed I wasn't there for that. But do you believe women should be, I guess, the leaders in, uh, I guess, relationship? So can you give me your perspective on that? Yeah. You study biology and you look back over the animal kingdom and you see there are males and females and you look at how they behave. And then you look at humans and you see how they behave. And it's hard not, it's, it's impossible for me to understand how you would not say in all those cases, in every species of animal, including the human, where you see children, you see women and women in caretaker roles and you tend not to see men something like 80 85 percent of the single parents in america today are women men can be single parents and they can be very good single parents but most of the time they don't want that job most men don't want that job if there's a divorce the mom takes the kids the man doesn't want them most of the time. Sometimes there's an exception. And when the, when the mom dies, a man can be a very good parent, a wonderful parent. But, you know, we're still looking at a, a gender propensity that if we just look across the board, women want to take care of children more than men do, not only as in the human species, but in all the species of animal, you'll never find. I mean, there, there, are, there are two exceptions or few exceptions. I think seahorses and hyenas or baboons, one of them. And there might be one other animal that's very unusual because the, the male does a lot of child care. But, in, you know, it's almost, almost across the board, almost perfect that the female stays with the kids and works with the kids longer than the male does. And when you look at the, the function of estrogen and compare it to the function of testosterone, it makes perfect sense. Estrogen nourishes compassion and caring. It's a caring hormone. And testosterone is the exact opposite. It's a fighting hormone. If you want to fight, the more testosterone you've got, the better fighter you'll be. And when you're a good fighter, well, that's not usually what you want from child caretakers. You don't want them to become hostile to their kids. And it's so easy. It's so easy to happen. I know myself, you know, um, 
stuff that my wife would tolerate and, and treat in a reasonable way, I would, I would tend to get to fly off the handle, you know, to, to want to hit the kid even, you know, you're not going to do that. You're not going to say that. You're not going to talk to me like that. You're not going to talk to your mom like that, you know, and I'm ready to punch the kid or something like that. That's no good. That's not childcare. Whereas a mom, you know, could be just as firm, but in a much more controlled manner. So there, that's my, that's my reason for thinking that. Um, I disagree with uh, see, certain, I, certain topics, I guess, that you said. I somewhat, I, some, I, I feel like me and Trey might be on the same page. I agree and disagree. I agree in, in the terms of a mother is definitely, I think, better in terms of um, taking care of the children, nurturing the children, showing compassion to the children, without a doubt. But also, like, do you still believe a woman should, I guess, be the head of the household, even if, let's say, if there is no kids involved, let's say if there is no kids, do you still believe she should run the relationship and be the head? That's good. You ask good questions, Tyler, and I think I haven't thought about that. I think if there's no children involved, I'd want to reconsider everything. And I think if there's no children involved, there may not be a reason to have a head. I mean, you have two people who live together, they share what they share, and they don't have to share what they don't want to share. Well, you can go your own way. You don't have to tell the other person what to do. The problem with kids is that sometimes you come, you, you can negotiate, you can compromise, you can share all sorts of uh, things with children, but sometimes it comes to whether we're, well, we're just going to do it this way or that way. We can't do it both ways. I mean, you're going to send your kid to school or you're going to homeschool your kid. You know, the kid is going to play football or he's not going to play football. You can't, you know, you can't compromise. You got to make a choice. In those cases, I say a woman makes a in general, a woman will make a, a better decision for the kid than the man will. But I don't think that that's, that applies when there are no children. I think you bring up a real good point. It may be then that you don't need a head and people just, if they don't agree, if they can't come to some kind of compromise, well, then they do their own thing. I don't know. I haven't thought about it that much. All right. Well, there are a couple of things I wanted to touch upon that you had said earlier. Um, you had said that uh, the majority of the single parents or single parent, uh, what was, did you say 85? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you give it the actual number, but yes. you said that a decent chunk of like single parents are mothers. And I would say a big proponent as to why this is happening in the first place is because people aren't waiting until they're married to have children anymore. They're just having unprotected sex by themselves or not by themselves, but with their partners and they're having children out of wedlock. And now that puts a lot of strain on a couple when they're not married, having a child that is one not prepared for. So then they separate. And that is the reason why you have this high rate of women just being single mothers. I I also I don't agree that I guess you'd say mothers care more than like fathers would because I think we care differently than how a mom would. 
I care by bringing you resources. I go to work on a daily basis. I slave for you. I make money to put food on the table. Now, I know your mom stays at home with you. She takes care of you. She sings your lullabies, this, that, and the other. But there are just certain things that a man has to go through for his family, which it might not be similar to how a female would do it, but it doesn't make it any less that he cares. Like, he's not doing this for himself. He's doing this for his family. I know Tyler could definitely attest to that growing up with the father that he had. Like, he gave up a lot of, he gave up certain things that he really wanted for his kids, you know? So I think fathers out there definitely, they, they might not get that that rep of, yeah. Because I'm going out there, I'm doing this. You know, it's like right. it's. I don't, it, I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, yeah, you're good. Frankly, I agree a lot with what you said, but I think Doug Doug is just talking about just like the nurturing sense, not necessarily like like providing sense. Like, like I feel like a mother is more like nurturing. Of you course, yeah, yeah. Mom's definitely more nurturing, but. I guess I understand what you're saying. That's not necessarily to say the father isn't as loving and to like take away from what the father also. He's just caring in a different way. Exactly. You know, and and, and I think a kid still at the end of the day needs tough love because all right, I'll take me for instance. I uh, I grew up in a single with a single mother. If there's one thing I definitely wish I did have was like a father in my life, just because I had to learn certain things from my friends. You know, I had to learn certain things from Tyler. You know, there's just specific things that you, you pick up as a man that you would gain from your father that you just don't gain from a mother. A mother's good. If you fall, she's good. Bit, it's OK. You know, take your time. Like, you know, uh, you don't have to get up immediately. But your father, he'll see no, you no, sulking. No. He's like, get up because he knows that's what you need, especially as a man. Maybe it's a little bit different when you have a daughter, but especially as a man, like you need that thing to drag you up. And listen, it's I know it sucks. It definitely does suck. But you got to get up and get back on that bicycle or ride it and try again. And you're going to fall a hundred other times, but you have to keep going. Now, your mother might not do that. And I agree. It's that is just different ways of parenting by both the genders. But I think it is still a necessity. And because, you know, I think marriage isn't as take isn't taken as seriously as it once was now. And people are just having sex as just just having sex to have sex. You know, we're going to have that higher rate of single parents and we're going to have a lot of kids who are growing up without both parents and then it will continue into the next generation and continue on and on and on and on and on a thing i have noticed about ladies is they don't respect a man that can't lead you know if you're asking them 24 7 what they want to do what they want to do all right what what restaurant do you want to go to uh, you know, well, what, what time do you want to do this? What time do you want? What days are you? They don't want that. You know, they want a guy who knows what they're doing, a guy who knows how to lead. I've tried the way of having her lead. They don't like that. They say they like it, but they don't. Really. They don't. They don't. They don't want that. They want to feel as though they can let go and someone is taking control and someone is in charge. Yeah, that's what I noticed. So I, I definitely I, I understand where you're coming from, but I don't think it's at least in I don't think it's the correct way of thinking. And if you have to rethink how your thought process works when the thinking has changed from all right, no, we're no longer with kids, we're just us two, then I might then the the, the thought process might be flawed to begin with because if it can't work for if it only works for when you have children and it doesn't also work for when you're both in a relationship together by yourselves, then like, why can't both go together? 
because it works both ways in my point of view when if a guy's leading a relationship a girl will follow him and if a father's leading his family the family will still follow him so if it can work both ways for that way but if it can't work both ways for the woman is in charge of the man when they're in a relationship and then the woman's also in charge of the family when they're in a relationship then maybe the thought process is flawed to begin with Yeah, I think there's a bunch of issues here that are all getting confused. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> I had a good father, and I'm hearing that Tyler had a good father. And when you've had a good father, you're grateful and you admire it. And you, yeah. You'd be like that. And I, I think my father was the head of the household. He, you know, but I'm... I admired him. He was, and he, he definitely made great sacrifices for the family. Yeah, that's true. A man can be real, really valuable asset. And sometimes I think a man is right and a woman is wrong sometimes. Yeah. And depending on how important that issue is, it may be there may be times when the man just has to say, you know, we're going to have to do it my way this time. Yeah, all that makes sense. But I think you're not looking at some of the numbers that mean a lot to me. What are you going to do about that? Where when, uh, when there's a family and the parents divorce, the kids go with the mom 80% of the time, not because they want the mom, but because the man doesn't want them. And not only does the man not, not want them, but in a divorce, the man doesn't want to pay child support. You got to threaten a man with jail time. Not all of them, certainly not all of them. No doubt there are men who divorced and then really do a good job of supporting the kids that they brought into the world. But the majority of them, the majority of men in the divorce no longer want to pay child support. And if you don't enforce it with jail time, they don't pay child support. In Connecticut, if you don't pay child support, you go to jail. Even then, men are late with it, they're reluctant to do it. How can that, what do you make of that? How do you make, what do you make of that? There's, there's no woman, no woman who's doing that. If a woman has a baby and has a child, she's going to take care of that. I mean, of course, there are mentally ill women who, who become abusive or neglectful and just can't handle the job. But the vast, vast majority of of mamas are lifelong committed to their kids. So what do you make of that difference? I, I would say See, I want to how I look at it is I think yeah, there are going to be some fathers who who don't want I don't think it's the majority though. Fucked. But I don't also I don't think it's a majority I don't think of them. Majority. And I also think that the I also think that the um I think that the core systems, regardless, are going to favor the mothers. Yeah, they're biased towards the mothers. 
So because of that, it's, it makes it a little bit harder for the father to get custody. Yeah. Um, also, I just want to um, try sent me this video and I've seen this video, but there was this dude who was like working like two jobs. He had what? I don't know, maybe two, three kids or whatever. And a wife, they're all living in the house. He was supporting them. Everything was fine. Then he found out she was cheating. Basically, what happened was she found out he found out she was cheating. But before he can do anything, she's the one who filed the divorce. And then because of that, she took everything from him. So she took the house. She took all the cars. She took everything from him. And on top of that, he couldn't see his children at all. And he ended up living in a car, still having to work two jobs while living in the car and having to pay child support for children that he couldn't see. And he was a good father and he wanted to be able to provide for his family, which he has been providing for his family. But like yeah. at the end of the day, what happened, the court system still, regardless of the whole situation, the court system still favored in the, in the terms of the female yeah. and come to find out he's the one who ended up living in the car and couldn't see his children and saw how to pay child support. So I do think regardless, like, yeah, don't get me wrong. There are some fathers who don't want to be there, but I do think, a decent amount of fathers actually do. Yeah, I think it's there for I, their children, and I do think that the court systems automatically off rip have go to the moms. their females, yeah. and it's gonna make it. It makes it much harder for the father to see them, or you know, they might only can see them once a week or twice a week, compared to maybe splitting it up three to four, four to th- like you know, it's it's a little bit uneven. I'd have to agree with with what Tyler's saying. You know, I mean, I think I. I he, the statement can't be said that the majority of the dads out there don't want don't want their kids, you know, um, believe it or not. Like, yes, they always say there's nothing like a mother's love, but there are a lot of dads out there who love their kids regardless of what anyone else like thinks of them, you know. So I, I don't agree that you would be the majority. And I don't I don't disagree that it's a majority of females that want to take care of the kids. Of course, most females want to take care of the kids. And I think most fathers want to take care of their kids. I think both parents care about their children. You know, there are those one or two that you were saying that might be either mentally ill or just they don't care like that, where they're just like, listen, I I want nothing to do with the child. And that definitely does happen. But I agree with Tyler when he's saying, like, listen, our, our court system has set it up to wherein it is perfectly fine to divorce your husband. And you could have done something wrong in that relationship, but it doesn't matter because you're the female. So I believe it's not just men and women relationships that are going to be affected by this, but just because of how our court system is set up, it has made it to where it is so easy to just divorce your man and just go get a check from the government each month to take care of your kid. You don't have to let him see the kid. He doesn't have to come around. You can lie and say, oh, he's he's never here. He doesn't want to be here. He wants nothing to do with us. And then you can just go around and tell your kid, your dad doesn't care about you when that's not even the case. He wants to be there, but he's working two, three jobs. And then because you guys put him in jail because he couldn't pay the child support, he doesn't have the amount of money, you put him in jail. So how is he expected to make the child support payments if he can't work? He's in jail. He can't do anything. Listen, so you got good reasons. You got good argument. You might be right. I'm, I, you know, every once in a while, I make a mistake. I might be wrong. It's a good topic. Some of the, some of the uh, 
assumptions can be verified by numbers, by data, however. I will say this. This, this I do know for a fact because I've heard multiple data sources say this, but 80, 80 to 85% of uh, divorces are filed by ladies. And what is the divorce rate now? What, 50%? Something like that, maybe even higher. So Which is crazy. Half the marriage, half of marriages end a divorce. So the people who are filing for divorce are, are women, which kind of goes along with a little bit of why one, there are so many single mothers in the first place, and two, the whole child support thing that me and Tyler were talking about and them getting custody and, and all that, you know, it's just which is why, at least me personally, I'm very worried about just marriage in general. You know, I used to idealize it as a kid, not not as much anymore as I've come to learn about not just female nature, but just human nature in general. How like, you really think someone love you, but they'll turn their back on you real quick. Kids and all, it don't matter. And that's why I think divorce is so high. And I said this in, in the last class we had on, uh, frankly, yesterday uh, in class, why the reason why divorce, I feel like it's so high is because I feel like everyone rushes into something before They'll rush into getting married. They'll rush into a relationship and trying to settle down before they actually like know their partner. Yeah. So they get so infatuated with, and I think Doug, you talked about this how in Disney and movies they kind of romanticize what it's like to like fall in love and find someone and be with someone. You know, they paint it as this like pretty picture. They paint it as like something so perfect and so beautiful when it's never really like that. And I think. People kind of get caught up in that, especially like in the beginning phases. Yeah. Um, they get caught up in that. I call it like the honeymoon phase of everything is so well. And then all of a sudden you get married during that phase. But eventually that shit kind of fades out. And then now you really are looking at the person who you quote unquote fell in love with. But you don't already marry them. You don't already had one or two kids with them already. But because you did everything so fast without actually getting to know that person. Now, what does that lead to now? That leads to a divorce filed by it could be the female or the male but a lot of times filed by the female you know mm -hmm. and to piggyback off of what you just said real quick i think uh, a lot of men and women um they're not taught how to be husbands and wives you know they just automatically expect oh now we're married now we know how to be a husband and now we know how to be a wife no it's it's not as cookie cutter as that it's not as simple as that being a husband is a difficult thing to do. And being a wife is a difficult thing to do. And I 100% agree that people, once they get married, they're quick to give up on that marriage to hope to find something new. Because they believe in the one and, oh, you're not working for me, so you're no longer the one for me. Sometimes you got to go through that trial and tribulation. Like, you know what I mean? Sometimes you're going to have to go through that struggle. That person could yeah. still be the one, but it ain't going to be perfect 24-7. Yeah. Well, whatever happened to till death do us part, that, that's not, that don't mean shit no more, apparently. It's until I get tired of this relationship. <laughs> that's exactly right. You're, you're talking good stuff. Real good stuff. And... Uh, I think it, it's got real practical impact. Talking about family stuff, everything from marriage to even dating, raising kids, raising sons, raising daughters, 
dealing with uh, gender confusion or gender change, all of this stuff, you know, it's left for the, you know, for movies or for popular songs. It's not, it's not presented to, to kids in a way that they can learn some skills about how to do it, how to make it work. You know, in my opinion, love and hate are pretty much the same thing. I agree. You can hate somebody that you don't care a lot about. It's just, it's just a little difference in perspective. And yet, once somebody senses hatred, they want to bail out. You don't bail out then. You bail out when the other person doesn't give a shit. That's the time to think about bailing out. I mean, apathy is the opposite to love, not hatred. Hatred means, how could you do this to me? I love you. How could you do this to me? You know, don't you love me? That kind of thing. That's, you're still involved. I think most parents come to hate their kids at least once or twice or more than that even as they're growing up. You know, how could you do this? And probably your spouse too. It's a good skill, I think, to learn that. Not to think that everything's always nice. You know, if you're going to live real life, sometimes it's not nice. That doesn't mean you bail out. I mean, you fight together just as you love together. You know, you, it's the, the, the together part that you have to, have to care enough about to work through the old times. Doug, how long have you been married for? 52 years. How, how are you able to sustain a marriage for that long, for 52 years? What do you think, like, well, is know. what kind of, like, you know, held you guys together? Yeah, it's luck. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely luck. you got to find the right woman. <laughs> Damn. Okay. Somebody tolerate you for 52 years, you know, that's not easy. <laughs> I'm pretty hard to live with. And uh, I don't know how I got this one, but she stuck with me. So that's why we're married. I hope you guys can be lucky like that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real, Doug. For real, man. <laughs> I really hope so too, man. Frankly, it's something I pray for. And, you know, you can help it happen, I think, by not, you know, when people go out on dates, you know, I lived in a dorm for my whole college years, and I would see, you know, the guys getting dressed up or, you know, they're, they're, they're looking, they're trying to look good, you know, and then when they go out on a date, they try to act good, whatever they think good is, you know, they act tough or they act smarter they act suave or whatever you know it's it's an act it's a lot of act you know they're trying to impress the woman well if you want to be loved for who you are don't try to be somebody you're not you know and i think women do the same thing you know they fix their hair they put on perfume they put on jewelry and you're looking at somebody who's really looking good and then you know, you're married two or three days and you're looking at somebody who 
just got up out of bed and they don't look that good, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I... I agree with you. I think uh, this is something that I try to say a lot on this podcast, um, something that I myself try to adhere by and actually practice what I preach. But uh, I believe in honesty. Just yeah. being honest, being straightforward, just saying how you are and not trying to change who you are because eventually that honest side of you is going to come out, you know, regardless of anything. And that's what that's what you want. Somebody to, to love to love, you know, the real you, not the fake you. I mean, imagine how exhausting you would be if you fooled some woman into thinking you were really tough or really smart or really elegant or whatever it was, whatever your thing was. And then, you know, you tied a knot and for the rest of your life, you got to put on that act. You have to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. You can't relax. You can't sleep late on a Saturday morning and get up and not put on your suit and tie or, you know, whatever else you, you did to make yourself look so attractive. And get exhausting. Yes. Too exhausting. Yeah. You'd have you to know? play that game 24-7 and never yeah. stop. Yeah. Just be yourself. And the crazy thing is, if we're that, we're good enough. You know, we're good enough. Somebody should be able to love us <laughs> if we're just honest. Yeah, I agree. That is very true. I agree. Well, as we come to the end of the show, um, Doug, we usually do this segment of uh, giving advice to our listeners, uh, young people out there who are listening. Um, so if you actually don't mind today, because uh, me and Todd usually go first, I'd like to hear just some advice you might want to give. Well, here's the advice I would give from spending the last hour with you guys is listen to your show. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) what's on the radio? What's on television? What's available out there? I mean, this last hour has been wonderful. It's been stimulating. It's been about really important stuff. You guys are very provocative without trying. It seems effortless that you can... You you kept me wide awake and fully engaged, and that's hard to do. So I, I, I genuinely didn't expect that. Wow! <laughs> that yeah, is, that's, thank you. Wow! Real. Yeah, that's thanks. We I appreciate that. Oh, okay. Right, Tune in. Are you are you every Saturday afternoon? Is this your time or? Oh, uh, we usually. So usually we record either on Fridays or Saturdays. Sometimes it's, if sometimes if something happens on Fridays, we record on Saturdays. Yeah. Well, it's been real nice listening to you. And, and I think it's rare to hear that. And it's, you've got a great future, I think, for your show. Just keep it like it is. Keep it honest. Keep it. All right, we'll do. We'll do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I guess I'll go next. Um, device uh for people out there uh i said this earlier and i'll say it again something that i tried to i try my best to live by you know but just being like your true self and being honest i think that is a powerful thing you know doug said it but if there's someone out there who's going to love you it's better for them to love you for the real you instead of loving you for someone who you're not you know so be yourself love yourself and Honestly, to add on to that, just like 
try to have some self-discipline. I think self-discipline will frankly lead to like your happiness at the end of the day. If you can control, you know, just getting things done on time, you know, control, just focusing on what's important. I think that will be very beneficial to you and the outcomes of your future. So that's, uh, yeah, that's my advice for today. Good advice. Thanks. Uh, my advice would, uh, my advice of the day would be listen more than you speak. I know I was a little bit more quieter in the in the beginning of this episode, mainly because I really don't know much about like the world war in Ukraine. But I think it's very important to do so, because even though I was quiet, I learned so much. And I think that's uh, what's huge when it comes to listening more than you speak is sometimes it really is good to just sit back and just listen, especially if it's about something you don't know and just soak in as much information as you can. Because you can leave a certain situation uh, basically much more knowledgeable than you were coming into the situation. And I think sometimes if you speak too much, you could either make a fool out of yourself or really, you know, sometimes you speak and don't even add value to the conversation or something like of, of that nature. So sometimes instead of speaking, uh, take the time really just to listen, especially if it's about something you're not fully sure of. And just try to soak in as much knowledge as you can, because, you know, knowledge is power. So uh, that is my advice. Can I, can I comment on that? Go ahead. Yeah, of course. I think that's probably the single most important skill in being married or raising kids is listening. And you sometimes can do so much good just by listening. Keep your mouth shut and just let the other person vent. Let them tell you what's bothering them. Let them... Don't even have to think of how to solve their problem. Don't have to offer advice. You just have to listen because it's hard to find somebody who will listen. Oh, that's true. And, yeah, that's and if you true. can do that and for your kids to be able to tell you what's really on their mind and not feel threatened. You know, so many kids are like prisoners. They're afraid to tell their parents what's really on their mind, what's really bugging them or what they're really doing. And then you build this wall of secrecy that you have to live inside and you don't even really know your own kids or your own wife or your own best friends, let's say, you know. So, Tyler, you really hit the nail on the head there. Listening, I think, you know, if I was to look back on my long life, listening, I should do more of it. I'm not real good at it. I like to talk. I like to talk too much. But listening is... Wow, that's probably the more, much more powerful of the two between speaking and listening. You know, I also want to add to, frankly, that um, I 100% agree with, uh, with both of you. This, this is something that I've noticed, and I, this is something that me and Tyler, we both have spoken about on countless podcasts and, frankly, on countless conversations that we've had just together. But a question, you know, that I always ask, when I'm speaking to someone, whether I know them or don't know them, I always ask them if they want just someone to vent to or if they want someone who they can just get advice from. And the thing that I've learned is that a lot of people, they just want someone to talk to. They just want someone to, they don't want you to solve their problems. They don't want you to fix their issue. They just want someone to listen to them. And I think once again, listening is such a powerful thing. You know, one, you can learn a lot from it. Two, you're giving that person that escape of, 
okay, I have someone who is going to just sit here and listen to me vent. Uh, you know, I can get all this off my chest and I don't have to worry about being judged, worry about being disliked, worry about any of the, the stresses that would come of someone who, instead of listening, is just listening to give advice, you know, because a lot of people, including myself, because I am a, I am a perpetrator of this, there have been times in the past where I, I've listened to someone just to give them advice. And before they're even done talking, I'm like, oh, well, you can fix that by doing this. Well, they didn't ask for that. They just asked for me to listen. And that's something that I have slowly gotten better with. So I, I agree with both of you. That is a powerful thing and something I believe we should all continue to learn and practice on a daily basis. Yeah. All right, then. Well, thank you guys so much for rocking with us and for listening to another podcast. We really do appreciate you guys. and appreciate everything you guys have done. I want to give a huge shout out to Doug. Thank you so yeah, much thank for you, taking thank the time you, to thank come you. on this podcast. We so really much do appreciate fun. you. And you've you've given us some fantastic conversations. Yeah, this Yeah, for real. So so thank you so much, Doug. We really do appreciate you. Before we go, quick uh quick reminder, check us out on Instagram. Instagram is going to be NOA underscore podcast. You can check me and Trey out as well. Mine is going to be Tyler underscore Waller three. Trades is going to be Trey Quan underscore Park 7. Check us out on TikTok. There's going to be NOA Podcast 1. And check out the NOA Podcast YouTube channel. Just type in the search bar, NOA Podcast. We pop right up. Um, all of our episodes are on YouTube as well as on Spotify. We even sometimes post little clips on YouTube as well. Like, follow, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Once again, thank you so much for listening to us. Thank you so much for rocking with us. We appreciate you guys. You guys take care. Stay safe. Have a good one.